Well, good morning uh, once again. Uh, I'm glad to be with you. Appreciate very, very much uh, being with you this weekend. Um, this has been a big weekend, <laughs> a big weekend for you all. Two hours of anything is a lot. Maybe I just have a short attention span, but two hours of, of anything can be a lot. And two hours of the kind of things we've been discussing, which is dense stuff, and I know that, and of course Buddy knows that, that means you're working too. But listening to that takes work. Uh, listening takes work, and thinking takes work. I had a professor one time as he was handing back papers to the class in grad school tell us, thinking is hard work. If, you'd, if it were easy, you'd see it, people doing it more often. <laughs> and I think he had a message for us. Right? <laughs> work on these papers a little more was his message. Um, but thinking is hard work, and the kind of lessons you've listened to and you've asked for uh, requires a lot of thinking, which means you've worked hard sitting there listening and engaging. In it. And I just say I appreciate it very much. I appreciate your hospitality. Those of you who've given us food to eat, little box waiting for me in the hotel. I wasn't going to say that. Figure buddy probably didn't get one, but I did. So. <laughs> but you know how cats out of that. It's just so, so thoughtful. Of you all, and whoever's responsible for those things, I don't know, but I thank you for it, and it makes a difference. Not only because I have a snack at night, which I probably don't need, but but it's just the awareness that people think about you, that your brethren think about you. It, it really means a lot, and I appreciate it. So we're gonna this morning finish my part talking about biology and education. This is where I make my living. It's uh, something I enjoy and I'm passionate about, and where for most of us. The theoretical discussions of the academic elite actually meet our life. It's when we go to school, or our kids go to school, and we take these courses, and what filters down from the ivory towers of high-level academia and government um, organizations and committees comes down to us in a daily life through education, typically, one form or another. So I want to talk a little bit about that and what's behind that, because there's an unquestionable connection, of course, to what biology is overall. I'm going to start with a quote from uh, a physicist, actually, <laughs> but he, he says something very helpful, I think, as we begin, we continue this, this study. This is Max Planck. Maybe you've heard of the Planck Institute, really famous physicist. He said this, no phrase has ever engendered more misunderstanding and confusion in the world of scholars than the expression... Science without presuppositions. It was coined originally by Theodore Mommsen and was meant to express that scientific analysis and research must steer clear of every preconceived opinion. But it could not be, nor was it intended to mean, that scientific research needs no presuppositions at all. Scientific thought must link itself to something. And the big question is, where? So... Like these guys do. They talk a lot. <laughs> but what he's saying is, there's no such thing as approaching science without any kind of preconceived idea. Because you can't do anything without some kind of preconceived idea. You have to start somewhere. And that's okay, because you've got to start somewhere. So his question is, so where does science actually start? Where does it link itself? And we've answered that, I think, already this weekend. What is it that's the tether for the study of natural science. And we'll review that again a little bit this morning. It has to link itself to something, and that's okay as long as we're honest about it, as long as we're straightforward about it. 
and we're very clear about what my presuppositions are at the very beginning of where I start. What kind of assumptions do I make? Because every argument someone makes is be- stands on an assumption of something. And we need to figure out what those assumptions are. The world of academics broadly, not bio, biology education exclusively, just academia, <clears throat> intellectual pursuit, is built on a philosophy today called postmodernism. We don't use that word very often. But what it basically is, it's a modern form of, of dualism. That there's a sort of the physical side of this is part of it, side of me. There's also the, the real side of me. And that's more reality than the physical side of me. And it opens up the world to who knows what's what, really. <laughs> who knows what's true? Uh, who knows what is right or what is virtuous? And it's more complicated than that, but that's much of the idea. It leads to the idea that values and morality and goals are inherently subjective. There is no standard that everyone should, under, should accept for what's moral and what is not. Is that obvious that that's influenced our culture, that idea? You do you, I do me, everybody does their own thing, and who's to tell you you're right or wrong? That's one of the ideas and the consequences of postmodernism. And so in education, the purpose of education is to seek to free students from traditional values and traditional morality that sets clear boundaries and standards, namely parents and religion. And when you get into the study of education, it is overt. We want to free students from the restrictive thinking of their parents and their religious institutions because postmodernism liberates you from that. Of course, as all prom- many promises of liberation do, they actually constrict you. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very harsh taskmaster. But the promise is liberty. And that's where education comes from. And those of you who work in education, and undoubtedly there are educators in this room, that's where broadly education curriculum comes from. It's what drives national standards. That's what it is. Now, in your community, in your school, it may be different because you're, you're able to adjust. But where those things are coming from and where we're being pushed unquestionably is a postmodern world. And what it leads to is relativism. Everything is relative. And today, folks, everything is relative practically, right? It's not for this discussion, but everything. The most objective reality, we're told, eh, not really. Whatever you want it to be is real. And no one can tell you it isn't. That's relativism. And relativism is not new, by the way, this idea that there's a real you and something else. Just briefly, turn to the book of 1 John, chapter 1. Read just a couple of verses there. There's nothing new under the sun, including the idea that, well, there's the physical you, but then there's the real you. That's an old, ancient idea. They didn't call it Gnosticism back then. I mean, they, didn't, they did call it Gnosticism back then. They didn't call it postmodernism back then. They called it Gnosticism. And maybe you've heard that word before. Uh, my son took philosophy his first year of college there down in Florida. And uh, he had heard Gnosticism only in sermons and Bible classes. He had heard that word, and he was reading through his textbook. And he said, hey, Gnosticism's in my textbook. I said, yeah, it probably is. It it was real. It's not just a preacher thing. (laughs) That was a real thing. He's like, ah, who knew? (laughs) That's just something preachers talked about. That was a real philosophy. And then he realized Stoicism was a real philosophy. And he said, when Acts talks about Paul arguing with a Stoic, they were real. That was a real thing. 
pretty cool connection. I said, yeah, it's a real thing. And one of the influences of Gnosticism was this idea that the spiritual realm is disconnected from the physical realm. And what you do in the physical realm doesn't really affect you in the spiritual realm, so do whatever you want. That was one version of Gnosticism. The other version was beat your body up because it's bad. That was another version of it. But basically, what you do here with your body doesn't really matter. It's a form of dualism. And John addresses that very clearly in this epistle. He doesn't use the word Gnosticism, but he's clearly addressing that idea very early. 1 John chapter 1, and verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him, Jesus, 1 John 1 and verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sins. Notice what he says there? If we walk in darkness, but say we have fellowship with Jesus, that's a lie. If my physical behavior doesn't reflect my spiritual relationship to the Lord, I had no spiritual relationship to the Lord. My physical living must be congruent with my spirituality. And in verse 7, that's what he says. Now, if you walk in light as he is in the light, then you have fellowship with one another and with him. And you can read through this book on your own, and you'll see repeatedly, he coming come back to this idea, you can't claim to be a disciple of Jesus and keep sinning. You can't make that claim. Our physical life has to reflect our spiritual life. And that's because there was this worldview in his day that said that wasn't true. That's very much what postmodernism does. Some people call it a neo-Gnosticism. It's the new Gnosticism. Everything is relative. That's the foundation of education. You all, as I mentioned before, you know my colleague, many of you know my colleague, Baxter Dickey. He's in the behavioral and social sciences. He teaches psychology and sociology and has been in that world his whole career. And he'll tell you he thinks behavioral science is more dangerous to you than biology because it's rooted in this kind of philosophy. It's totally secular. He said, you want to be really dangerous, be an English major. (laughs) And he's not really kidding about that. (laughs) Be a humanities major. Because that's where these ideas are discussed and intellectually really brought out. So it's all over education, is my point. It's all over education. This idea of relativism. But it's not the dominant view in every department of education. There is a small little cluster of study that rejects the idea of relativism. And among that's natural science. Natural science rests more on the idea of materialism, which postmodernism can as well. But as we've shown already, the worldview of natural science and the education of natural science is materialism. You can't be relativistic as a scientist and be an engineer because people die. You can't do that as a chemist because you blow people up. (laughs) That doesn't work. You inject people with the wrong medicine. You better get their medicine right in the IV. People die. So postmodernism, when applied to things like natural science, doesn't work because it's practical. And people get killed if you don't do it right. There is a right answer to how to build a bridge. Those kinds of things. And so it is not nearly as relativistic in many ways as as the other disciplines. In many ways, in fact, reality is objective in natural science. Now, that's being challenged right now, in biology at least, it's being challenged. 
with some of the cultural questions that we're dealing with. But reality is largely objective. In other words, natural science tends to be absolute. In contrast to relativism, it's established on absolutism. And that is a word. <laughs> absolutism. Absolutism. Things are absolute. There is a right and there is a wrong. Mathematics is like that. Oh, there's arguments about that right now. Is math really? It's all... Try to go to the moon without math and say it's all relative. It's not going to work. SpaceX is not going to land its little capsule back on the launch pad unless there's a, a way to do it. And that math and those physics principles must work. Biology, like many of the other sciences, like the other natural sciences, accepts the view that it is a discipline with a foundation committed to fact, to absolute right and wrong answers. And it leads us to reality, things that are real. I took a course called Human History and Evolution uh, in, uh, I guess I was an undergrad when I took it. It was an elective. It was an anthropology course. The professor was a great professor, one of the best college teachers I, I had in my, all my tenure of college. She worked with uh, National Geographic a lot. She was at the University of Florida. She ended up at the University of New York, pretty prestigious. She led international teams in the United States to go study abroad, very broadly respected, and just a good teacher, and just a really nice lady. We had a couple conversations in her office, and she was just very kind, knowing where I was coming from. But first class, I have these notes still. She said, we have different ways of knowing. One is we think. That's rationalism. We can think through things. We feel things. That's intuitive. So that's a way of knowing what the world is about. We feel things. We can sense them. It's empirical. So we can, that's, science does a lot. You scope it, you measure it, you touch it, you sniff it, you taste it. Chemists back in the day used to taste all kinds of stuff. <laughs> they frown against that now in chemistry labs, but what is that? I don't know. <laughs> Just lick it. That's, a, that's safe practice. <laughs> but how else are you going to know? right? So you needed some kind of empirical evidence, and that's what they would do. And then you can believe things. And so you know it because an authority told you this is what you're supposed to believe. So you follow it. So this is my notes. This is how we study the world. And so belief is based in things like ideologies, delusions, mythologies. People believe them because not because there's any kind of rational, intuitive, or empirical reason to, but because some authority told you to and you decided to follow the authority. So that's day one, first few minutes of class. This is how you study the world. And then she said, this is what we're going to do in this class. And she gave us the next chart, which I'm going to show you. Science is based on fact, empirical evidence, and continual testing. And this is a science class. Science is based on fact, empirical evidence, and continual testing. What we will not do is talk about belief. Beliefs are based in faith and in doctrine. I told you this is right, so believe it. Day one, human history and evolution. So you see what that does as far as education goes. Does, does something about that dichotomy strike you wrong? This is science. This is belief. Is there no belief in science? That's what that chart shows. That's what that communicates. And I don't say this flippantly. I mean this. 
I don't think I've ever taken a course in all my education that had more belief in it than that course, Human History and Evolution. Because they tell this whole story about early hominids, alleged early hominids, and how one led to the other, to the other, to the other. And the whole thing is based on belief and conjecture and just-so stories. The whole course was. And that's how I'd answer my questions, typically. According to scholars, the story is da-da-da-da-da-da. And I'd answer the questions on things. What that claims is that science is rational and empirical. Science gives you reality. That's how natural science works. This is the answer. Because it's rational and empirical. Everything else, like belief systems, are feelings. They're untestable. They're authoritarian. They are at myth. Those are my words. The reality and myth were mine. But that's the dichotomy. And where biology education comes from is that kind of dichotomy. Is that what we're teaching you is real. Whatever you want to believe out there, that's fine. But we're teaching you what's real. As opposed to mythological. Well, is biology really? Is that really how natural science works? It's not at all. And anytime someone tries to claim all ground of fact, evidence, and testing, beware. Because if we yield that ground, folks, you're, you're toast. You're done. It is not a biblical faith that is a non-thinking, empirical, don't tell me any facts faith. That is not a Bible faith. That's not what Paul went around doing. Just arm-twisting people into some kind of belief. He went around making argument based on evidence that he had seen, that others had seen. Some evidence, certainly near Jerusalem, could be tested and then argued. And certainly, if anybody thinks biology is without doctrine, then they need to go back and reread this, re-listen to these lectures this weekend. Just that much. It is absolutely rooted in doctrine. And if you don't follow the doctrinal line, folks, you will not progress professionally. Is science really absolute? Is biology really absolute? We're not going to re- review all of that, what we talked about this weekend. Well, here's one quote that we saw already. Moreover, that materialism is absolute. That's an honest statement that we saw Friday night from a, a very well-known evolutionary biologist. Here's that chart again from my professor. Fact, evidence, testing. That's pretty absolute. This is science, and that's what we do. The next generation science standards read this way. Among those standards is this. We are to communicate scientific information that common ancestry and biological evolution are supported by multiple lines of empirical evidence. Folks, that's a pretty absolute claim. Not that, I mean, there's no alternative to that in the standards. It is common ancestry. And it is supported from multiple lines of evidence and nothing else about Human history or origin of species is mentioned in there. Nothing else is to be taught. That is an absolute line. That is the truth. That is what you teach. And there's no alternative. That's what you teach in the next generation science standards. But as we have seen, biology is not rooted in fact, evidence, or testing. It is rooted in a materialistic philosophy, which is a belief. As all philosophies are, it is untestable. Can you test Is there any kind of test to prove that physical matter is the only thing that exists? You can't test that. That's why it's a belief. And that's okay if you want to choose to believe that. You have the right to believe that. You don't have the right 
to believe that and say, my position has no belief in it. My position has no faith in it. That's academically, intellectually dishonest. Maybe inadvertent, but it's dishonest. And then to tell me I have no, nothing like fact or evidence in my point of view. It's an easy way to win an argument. Just couch somebody as the, in the weakest position possible and myself in the strongest position possible. When I mean, who, can, who can't lose that, that kind of an argument? The fact is, the reality is, science education, science is clothed in a belief that is subjective and is untestable. So the question to ask is why do other academics let science do that? Why is science allowed to get away with that? Because broadly in education you're not. It's a postmodern world we live in without question. So why do folks in the humanities let the natural science guys stand on this ground and claiming absolute knowledge on things? It's an interesting question. It's a good question. Why do they get that privilege? There was a book written now 20 plus years ago by Philip Johnson. Philip Johnson was a, a big name in the intelligent design community early on. He wrote a book called Darwin on Trial. Maybe you've heard of that one. That's one of the big first intelligent design books that made a big splash culturally. Johnson was a lawyer, very bright guy, but he specialized in analyzing argument. That's what he did. What's the assumption behind arguments? He was a professor at Berkeley, I think. Attended University of Chicago, pretty big name schools. And he wrote a book called Reason in the Balance. And part of the discussion that book looked at education, looked at this question. And he said this about it. Naturalism, another term for materialism, naturalism in science provides the foundation for liberal rationalism in morals by keeping the possibility of divine authority effectively out of the picture. You have what he's saying there? Right, the reason you can get away with an absolute standard in the sciences is because it's the foundation for the relativism everywhere else. If science can establish naturalism is it, there is no God. Intellectually, it's foolish to believe God could possibly even exist. No need for God. Then that allows everything else to be relativistic. It gives intellectual authority to postmodernism. The absolutism of science is the foundation for relativism in all the other disciplines, and thus for morality and for ethics and politics and everything else. And I think he's right. I think he's right about that. Luanton was very honest in saying, here in biology, we believe materialism, and it's absolute because you cannot allow a divine foot in the door. Mended that quote for the other disciplines in academia. We allow absolutism in science because it allows us, it prevents a divine foot in our door. And so we can stand on our ground of relativism in English and psychology and whatever else. Certainly all the arts, all the arts, powerfully relativistic. The defense of Darwinism and opposition to creation 
runs deeper than simply preserving science. The idea of intelligent design undermines our worldview, not just in the scientific community, but in the entire intellectual community, the entire community of education. It rocks their entire belief base. That's where it comes from. Philip Johnson continued saying this, Belief in naturalistic evolution is foundational to a great deal else. And so it can hardly be presented as open to doubt. The schools accordingly teach that humans discover the profound truth of evolution, but they invent moral standards and can change them as human needs change. You understand the difference in that quote? Belief in evolution establishes everything else. We discover the absolute truth of Darwinism. And that truth allows us to say, well, now you can invent whatever moral standards you want for yourself. Whatever your moral standard is for your behavior, that's your standard, and who am I? Say anything. You can invent your gender for yourself. Whichever of a great many that may be. Whatever combination of a great many that may be. Or whatever obscurity that may be. That's yours to invent. Folks, where does that idea come from? It doesn't come from just nowhere. That kind of relativism, that ignores objective biological reality, comes from somewhere. It comes from a worldview. And everybody defends their worldview, typically, heartily. And so to challenge Darwinism challenges a great, great deal else. Folks, when when the ground under our feet begins to crack, we're going to react to that. And the kinds of things that Buddy and I have talked about this weekend with you all, which I think are true, they create fractures in the foundation underneath people's feet. And people don't like that because it rattles our worldview. You don't like that. I don't either. It makes us uncomfortable. And that's just being a person. It just makes us uncomfortable. It's it's hard to have our worldview challenged because everything built on that, which is everything, (laughs) is challenged. And our values begin to shake and what we understand to be. Our freedoms begins to rattle around, and that's uncomfortable. And when you push it in education, that becomes uncomfortable. So why is biology education what it is? For lots of reasons, it's a very complex answer. Don't want to oversimplify it. It's not only because they're defending what they believe to be true about Darwinism, but it's because all the rest of the academic community is saying, defend that about Darwinism. Because the foundation for our own disciplines and our own worldview in those, in those disciplines. I want to share something here with you that I, just for a couple of minutes I do with my class. So if any of you end up coming to my class someday, and Lord willing, that will happen for some of you, Don't ruin my game on day one, because this is what I do on day one. (laughs) So don't mess me up. I show this picture, and uh, I say, all right, imagine you're a scientist, and this is a picture of footprints in the snow. This is your data, footprints in the snow. If Darwin was anything, he was an excellent observer. He was really good at just paying attention to the world around him, and good scientists are. That's where science always begins. You, You notice something, and then you think, hmm. 
why? And then you start trying to investigate it. So these are footprints in the snow. And the first thing I tell them, ask them to do, I say, give me an observation about this picture. And we sort of break it up into these three sections. So I say, look at section one. And just in your own head, think about that. If I say, give me an observation from section one, what might you come up with? And we run them through that. And I, on the whiteboard, I write down all these observations. Inevitably, instead of an observation, what do you think somebody gives me? Can't really hear it here, but that's okay. Uh, yeah, an inference or a, or a conclusion, an assumption about, inevitably. And so we pause and we talk very briefly about the difference in an observation and an inference. Because that's all the difference in the world. All the difference in the world. So we moved to section two. I said, all right, give me an observation. And then section three, and we walk through that. So you might have a list of observations of things like this. There were two animals. Maybe that's an inference, but two sets of prints is probably the best way to put that. There's two sets of prints. They enter from different directions. The large prints spread apart. Is the green button the? Okay, good. Yeah. The large prints spread apart right there. In the middle, they mix together. Only one set of prints leaves, and it's the large ones. They leave in a specific direction. And you can go on and on with that, right? And then we just make a big list of observations. And then I say, all right, that's the observation. Now, the fun part is trying to figure out what's going on. So give me some interpretations. Give me some inferences here. And, man, we just write all kinds of inferences on the board. All kinds of, and you'll, you'll have some. What's going on right here? Why do those footprints speed up? You can come up with inferences for that. Why are these footprints muddled in the middle? And the first answer usually is carnage. <laughs> Death has happened. That's usually what goes on. But we expand it. We come up with some other options. Usually someone says, okay, it's a baby and a mom and they're happy. That usually comes up. <laughs> Often a female student. <laughs> and, and then why does one footprint leave? Well, we come up with inferences for that. And we run through this, and nearly every time I've done this, only two or three times, and all the times I've done this, do people not make the same kind of mistake. So here's some potential inferences you can make. And we do all this, they write down all their inferences, all their conclusions, and then almost always it works out, because I don't give them, a, if I give them enough time, somebody figures this out, but I say, all right, now, all of your inferences, all of your conclusions are based on a common assumption that I didn't tell you was true, but all of you are making. You probably don't even realize you're making it, but you're making an assumption. And that assumption is influencing your inferences. And the inferences I have here on the board are all based on an assumption being true that I never said was true and run them through this exercise. Then I ask, what assumption is that? Anybody here have an idea what assumption is behind? You haven't had much time to look at it, I know. Yes? Yeah, they were made at the same time. That's the assumption. And that's naturally where we start. Everybody typically just starts, these prints were made at the same time. Which is why I don't give them too long to think about it, because I want to make this point. <laughs> I said, now take away that presumption. Get that out of the way. And now give me inferences for this information. And folks, it opens up a whole nother whiteboard of possible explanations. If they were made 20 minutes apart, let's say, or 30 minutes apart, or two hours apart. And suddenly all kinds of inferences that never came to mind, <laughs> that we never even thought about, become at least as reasonable as any of these on the screen. Because we got an assumption out of the way and the key thing is, I didn't even know I was making that assumption. Folks, we do that all the time in personal relationships. Right? We just assume things about people 
that may not be true. <laughs> and so we infer judgments and conclusions about their motives or their intentions. Have you ever done that? I've done that. It's a mistake. Not a healthy way to have relationships, but we do it. We do that all the time. Assumptions are powerful. They're deeply powerful. And so when you make assumptions like materialism, understand what that's doing is blocking out an entire realm of explanation and restricting yourself to only this narrow options for inferences and conclusions about things. Whole possibilities of reality are excluded without ever being considered from the beginning because of the assumptions I make. That's what materialism is. That's the foundation of biology education. And so if you try to get out of that and broaden the possibilities in biology, what you run into is a lot of other disciplines saying, you better not do that. Because that's going to affect all these other disciplines of education. And Johnson, I think, does a really effective job in that book illustrating that idea. So what now? What do we do? Well, it's important to understand there are two, at least two, fundamentally different questions that we've addressed this weekend. The first question when you look at something is, was this thing designed? And then we see some great evidence that this stuff is designed. From light-sensitive spots to the human eye to little molecular machines buried deep in cells, so much evidence that things are designed. That's one question. Science, science can lead to that, can address that question. It does it all the time. That's a separate question from who or what designed it. That's a different question. And it may be that science can't answer that one. They've tried, by the way. It is a legitimate theory in literature that life originated on Earth from outer space. Either accidentally, some meteor that brought some kind of simple form of life landed on Earth, and that's where the first biological organisms came from, or some advanced civilization seeded planet Earth. But you know how much evidence there is for life existing outside in outer space? Zippo! Nada! <laughs> Nothing! Now, it's a really big place out there, <laughs> and there's a lot of stuff out there, but we have found not one organic molecule of any kind out there. Zero evidence. But it's in the literature. Who designed it? Well, if it was designed, it sure wasn't designed by a god. It was designed by something else that arose on its own through some naturalistic means out there somewhere. So the challenge of answering this first question, was this designed, is because it just might lead, it just does lead to that second question, who or what designed it? And that leads into a realm that science, frankly, often cannot answer. You've got to move to something else. Remember that. And students who have these questions, who will face these questions, they're important questions. Remember this. There are two different questions. Was this designed? Well, overwhelmingly, yes. <laughs> who did it? Well, science just may not be able to answer that question. And that's okay, unless you're a materialist. We need to see the worldview behind science and behind science education because behind your science education, if it's anything mainstream, is a worldview of materialism. You need to know it's there. You need to see it. Don't be afraid of it, but respect it. Understand that's where it's coming from. When we do respect it and see it, we need to be alert to the influence that it can have. We're just going to look at one of these verses. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, please. 
You know this verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 33. You probably know this verse. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits, good morals, whatever your translation says. We most often, I think, apply this verse to human relationships. And that's, that's a fair application. That certainly is true. But that's not what Paul's talking about in this chapter. He's not talking about friendships. He's talking about an idea that there is no resurrection and the implications of that. This is whole chapters about that idea. He says, look, that is a dangerous idea. <laughs> Don't accept that idea because all these implications are there. He's talking about the friendship, the company I keep with ideas. And he says the wrong ideas are going to corrupt good behavior because we live what we think. That's number one? Okay, good. One, that's one minute. Man, I already missed the other two. We live what we think. So respect ideas. Don't be afraid of them, but respect them. Trust that biology education can lead us, not away from God, but to see God. That's what biology is designed to do. Psalm 19, Romans 1, Romans 1 both speak to that. That's what we do now. Having a worldview is necessary. Everybody has one, and it influences the way we see everything. So make sure that as you develop yours, you do so honestly, that you test the influences that are coming to you because they are numerous. In the end, you look here. You look here. That ultimately, it is faith that confirms our, our standing on anything about where we came from as organisms and living beings. Thanks again for your attention. Appreciate it.